Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we check out the huge growth in Indigenous businesses. When we launched our council back in 2009, we only had 13 Indigenous businesses certified with us and about 32 members. And you fast forward to today and we have over 2,700 Indigenous businesses listed on our national directory and over 450 corporate members. And we catch up with Indigenous business leader Eddie Fry to hear his view on the sector. I believe that corporate Australia and indeed foreign companies coming into this uh, great country of ours needs to mature its outreach into the Indigenous business sector in a way that you know fosters and uh, almost like a nursery approach to, to get business to survive. That's all coming up on the program when we discover what happens next. Well, currently there are around 16,000 Indigenous-owned businesses across Australia. And that number is predicted to grow to 18,000 over the next five years. This growth is being seen in a range of sectors, from cultural services, building contractors and architecture, to fire management practices and financial and professional services. Data from Supply Nation shows that for every $1 of revenue from an Indigenous business, certified Indigenous suppliers generate $4.41 in social return. To find out more, I caught up with Laura Berry, the CEO of Supply Nation, and Glenn Brennan, Indigenous business lead partner, KPMG. Laura Berry, Glenn Brennan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Bernard. Laura, I'll start with you. Supply Nation plays a key role in connecting Indigenous businesses to the corporate sector. How has this connection changed over the years? Supply Nation's been around for 11 years now, Bernard. As an organisation, we've matured over that time, but also the sector itself has significantly grown and matured. The, the concept of supplier diversity and the model of the council that Supply Nation has been built on has its roots back in the civil rights movements back in the 60s and 70s in the United States. And when we launched our council back in 2009, we only had 13 Indigenous businesses certified with us and about 32 members. And you fast forward to today and we have over 2,700 Indigenous businesses listed on our national directory and over 450 uh, corporate members. So we were very much about making the connections directly with Indigenous businesses and corporates and we still do that you know, at a very fundamental level through face-to-face -face interaction when we're not in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Um, but we've also really built our capability um, you know, through the training programs that we have, um, through digital tools that we offer for both our suppliers and our members and you know, really developing world's best practice information and knowledge sharing so that we can enhance the interaction between, you know, the, the people who are looking to buy goods and services from Indigenous businesses um, and the Indigenous business owners themselves. Because as the sector has grown and become more sophisticated, both sides of that equation are really looking for the opportunities to, uh, to find deeper connections and also to do it at a faster pace in a digital world that we now find ourselves in. Glenn, from your perspective, what kinds of advice are Indigenous businesses looking for right now? Look, I, I think I sort of group them under three things. 
the first thing I think that COVID sort of revealed that access to timely and accurate financial information on your business is really important. So, you know, I think what we're seeing now is businesses spend more in, you know, what they're doing with their accountants, um, their bookkeepers, and just how they manage the money that comes in and out of their business. Because, you know, I think COVID revealed that, you know, you needed up-to-date financial information if you want to be able to take advantage of key things like JobKeeper. I think the other thing that businesses are looking for, and, you know, this is COVID-specific again, but COVID forced a lot of changes, and I think that, you know, a lot of Indigenous business now are looking around and go, well, actually, what are worth keeping? You know, and an example of that could be flexible working, right? And what's the spend that's required to do that? There was a time where maybe only senior people had access to laptops and phones so they could work remotely. But what are the IT solutions that potentially allow you to take some of those learnings that you sort of were forced upon you and sort of take those forward now, which is that this is actually the new normal. This is this is how we work. These are good ideas. These work well. And how can we ensure that we keep them going? The other thing I think that Indigenous businesses are looking for is how to grow. And we're going to see a spend come out from government in the recovery phase and how to get a bigger piece of that pie, particularly in the infrastructure space. So I think there's that little bit around growth aspirations, which might people might find a little counterintuitive. But as we look to sort of recover from COVID, um, businesses positioning themselves with the investment in their capability and capacity to be able to take advantage of larger opportunities, I think is really important. Reconciliation action plans have no doubt helped increase Indigenous procurement. But are there any gaps or areas that still need to be addressed on behalf of Indigenous businesses? Laura? Uh, Look, I think reconciliation action plans have been a game changer in terms of the way that businesses and corporations um, in particular have engaged with Indigenous business because the framework that is there um, that allows a business to set themselves a framework for uh, how they engage with Indigenous people across a range of areas, including uh, through business, but also how they then set targets and report on that. That's been a really uh, critical step change. And we do hear from a number of our Indigenous Indigenous business owners, that when they're thinking about how they might approach a business uh, to talk to them about any opportunities for them to do work together, you know, they'll check whether they're a member of Supply Nation, but they'll also go and check whether they have a reconciliation action plan and use that, I guess, as a as a tool or a lever to go in and say to that business, we know you have a wrap, uh, we know you're a member of Supply Nations, we know that you've got a commitment around Indigenous procurement, so how can we uh, have a conversation or how can we help you? with some goods and services that that might um, help you towards your RAP targets. And I think that the program has definitely um, developed significantly over time. I mean, it was five or six years ago now that I was in a corporation writing our, um, our reconciliation action plans and doing the reporting on them. And I think the process and the accountability side of things has increased over time. But I still think there are, you know, e- extra steps that organisations can take and making those targets that they do set public and transparent. Glenn, your thoughts? Yeah, the, the, very similar. But I, I think that the bit that we're seeing the growth is, is that the Indigenous procurement policy of the federal government is not just for government departments. And I think you've seen initiatives come out of the Business Council of Australia now, like the Raising the Bar initiative, where 16 corporates have sort of signed up to buy $2 billion worth of products and services for Indigenous businesses. I think it's really that growth in demand where potentially reconciliation action plans, where they make commitments and hold themselves accountable, 
So I think that's a real opportunity. I think the other opportunity we talk about is, is uh, and Laura mentioned this, you know, we've got 2,700 Indigenous businesses now, but really working with some of those more established businesses to help them grow. And we want businesses that go from taking advantage of million-dollar opportunities to taking advantage of $10 million opportunities. And the last piece I was just going to talk about is, is that we don't want an over-dependence on policy. You know, I think what we need to look at, and this is on the demand side, is that when organisations, uh, you know, sign up to buy, that we need to be working just as hard that we're working on the procurement offices to make sure that they're sort of aligned with the expectations, they're aligned with the values, and we're able to work together on a supply and demand which actually will produce the best outcome for everyone. So, you know, I think there's exciting times ahead. It appears that there's a boom in Indigenous businesses across a range of sectors, but how does this sector keep the momentum going and take it to the next level? Again, Laura. Um, We've just crunched some of the numbers from our members reporting at Supply Nation over the last financial year, and we've seen more than $1.5 billion worth of spend with Indigenous businesses, and that's not with 100% of our members reporting their spend at this stage. So, um, we're seeing, we were seeing pre-COVID that, you know, the sector was growing at about 13% per annum at a much, much faster rate than the non-Indigenous business sector. We've seen at Supply Nation during the pandemic, Quite interestingly, um, of course, a number of businesses are holding on and we're we're not seeing businesses uh, deregistering and and ceasing their operations. And perhaps that is a, um, you know, an outcome of things like JobKeeper, etc. So we'll see how that plays out over the next little while. But what I'm finding really interesting is that we're continuing to see new businesses registering on our database and we're actually having record months of registration. Um, so, you know, 50 and 60 businesses a month over the last couple of months registering their businesses um, to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are coming out of this pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, as Glenn mentioned, it might be in the infrastructure space, but but it might also be where businesses have had the time and the space to take a look at their operations and think about how they might either pivot their operations or take on extra um, activities or provide extra services or change their business model altogether and then set up something else because they've seen an opportunity in the market, particularly when we're looking at things being delivered in a more flexible and digital way. So I think that we are going to see the momentum going. We're seeing incredible resilience in our sector. Um, I think that speaks to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in general. We are a resilient people and I think we're going to see some really exciting momentum continue as part of this recovery going forward. And, you know, one of, one of the great things that we're seeing in the evolution of, of sort of the Indigenous business space, in the early days you would have seen joint ventures, which would have been uh, an Indigenous company sort of signing up and, and having a joint venture with a non-Indigenous partner so because that partner would give them scale. But what we're starting to see now is where Indigenous businesses are partnering with other Indigenous businesses, right, to achieve scale. And I think of what we're starting to see there is that by working together in partnership, Indigenous businesses working with each other, they're able to offer national scale, uh, they're able to offer flexibility and, and a passion for Indigenous Australia. From each of your views, what advice would you give to Indigenous entrepreneurs thinking about starting a business or who are just starting out? 
Oh, I think that it's still a great time for an Indigenous entrepreneur who's thinking about starting a business to jump in with both feet and give it a go. There is an increasing amount of support in the sector these days. We've got our Indigenous Chambers of Commerce, we've got Supply Nation, we've got our corporate and government members who are all looking to support businesses through that journey. But now we actually are also seeing, you know, as Glenn mentioned before, established and mature Indigenous businesses in the marketplace and role models for new entrepreneurs entering the market to reach out to and ask uh, for advice. And I think that's something that we weren't seeing a lot of 10 years or so ago. So that's a really exciting uh, opportunity, I think, for Indigenous entrepreneurs. I think Huda Guru's probably said it best, there's no time like the right time and now's the right time. I think getting into business is just taking that first step and I encourage any Indigenous entrepreneurs out there to do exactly that. It's okay to have a go and maybe not get it right the first time. Um, I think for all of us, you know, we've learnt the most when we've actually really tried and failed at something. And the amount of businesses and, and entrepreneurs out there that have tried and failed, learn a lot and tried again, I think it's one of those things that we need to get comfortable with is that it's tough and it's something you might have to have a couple of cracks at. But having that resilience and making sure you take advantage of the opportunities and the support services are there, um, it really should make your life a little easier and give you a leg up and give you a ticket to the game. I, I do talk about the ticket to the game. I, the Indigenous procurement policy is exactly that. But at the end of the day, with 2,700 Indigenous businesses now registered with Supply Nation, it's a competitive market. So there is something about that willingness to compete, making sure you've got clarity regarding your capability statement and what you offer and how you're able to differentiate yourself from competitors is really important because at the end of the day, this is the business world and um, there's lots of people out there looking to take advantage of this opportunity. Glenn, I love that point about uh, failing is part of business and it's how you recover from that. So I think that's some great advice. Laura and Glenn, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. The Indigenous Land and Sea Council and Indigenous Business Australia are two critical organisations that help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people recognise and realise strong business opportunities. For more detail on the role these organisations play in the Indigenous business sector, I spoke to Eddie Fry, Chair of both the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation and Indigenous Business Australia. Eddie Fry, welcome to the program. Hi, Bernard. Eddie, you've written before about unlocking the potential of the Indigenous estate. Firstly, for our listeners, can you explain what the Indigenous estate is? Okay, the Indigenous estate is a large mass holding of Indigenous groups right across the nation. They could be land that is managed, lived on, owned or leased by these uh, groups. They've been held either in their own right through acts of uh, legislative powers that bestowed land to the holdings of um, and ownership of Indigenous groups um, with uh, specific regulatory arrangements around them. And of course, then there's native title and the determination of native title. And so unlocking the potential of this Indigenous estate can be quite complicated. What are some of the best examples of this that you've seen? It's complicated for a number of reasons. 
And I don't think anyone would be surprised that top of the list is trust. The lack of trust that Aboriginal people or Indigenous or ATSI people may feel, I think is a, a very real consideration that, that complicates matters. Over the last probably 10 to 20 years, maybe a little bit more, um, the industry that I've worked, which is the resource sector, it had to spend a lot of time and energy and resources to develop a platform of trust. For example, if we acquire land uh, as part of the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation for an Indigenous group, a state or territory, uh, government or indeed um, a federal regulation uh, or legislation piece might apply to that particular parcel of land and it takes a significant amount of time to be able to get the either state or territory government to allow us to divest that land uh, in total ownership to the Indigenous group for which we bought that land. So the complications is not just simply not knowing what to do, it's, it's all these other uh, factors that come in. Now here's the thing, we in Australia, we don't applaud well enough the theory of uh, minimisation of errors. There's this big difference in the way we see people approaching business. And if someone fails, we tend to turn that individual into a pariah. And it's very difficult for that person to get up off the ground again and have a go. And then there's the stigma of a, of a failed business. Now, we know that in the small to medium-sized enterprise, whether it's Indigenous or non-Indigenous, within the first three years, 60% of the, of the number of businesses are going to fail. And we also know that a number of them are reasonably profitable. So there's all these complicated uh, matters that from a non-Indigenous perspective, uh, businesses are failing. And then we have Indigenous people who are trying to break in, who are also faced with all the same obstacles, but maybe not coming from the type of backgrounds that their counterparts are coming from. Eddie, do you think there is enough being done at a corporate level to partner with Indigenous businesses and industry? It's a really good question. I believe that uh, corporate Australia and indeed foreign investments, uh, foreign companies coming into this uh, great country of ours have grown this area. However, this needs to mature, uh, to mature its, its outreach uh, into the Indigenous sector or the Indigenous business sector in a way that you know fosters an uh, almost like a nursery approach to, to get business to survive. Now, one of the um, new or novel ideas might be a life of contract model. And the life of contract model is where I have a contract with my principal for the next five years, but I'm gonna lock you in for five years as well. Therefore, I get consistency, I like your work. Now it's up to you to lose it. In other words, get out of bed every day. Uh, and wake up every day knowing that the world can change on you, particularly in these COVID times, uh, so that you have your nose to the grindstone. When we move to that type of arrangement on a more larger scale and we scale that up, what you're going to do, you're going to get a, a solidifying of a group of Indigenous businesses that are going to become well known that information transfers with the decision makers. So you then get this growing effect across small or large scale operators. Eddie Fry, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. 
I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. And now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. So, Bernard, it was amazing to hear from Laura and Glenn that there's such huge growth in Indigenous-owned businesses. What do you think? Absolutely. I think that it's uh, wonderful to see those numbers, the expansion in the number of businesses that were registered with Supply Nation. But I'm also very optimistic about Australian business in particular over the next five years, and especially uh, Indigenous business. I think there is a a sense of uh, patriotism in Australian consumer spending, concern about issues like supply chain security, making sure that we're supporting local and Australian businesses and what could be more Australian than an Indigenous business, but also the emergence of or pivoted spending. For example, I can see that uh, spending that might have been directed previously towards overseas travel could be directed towards regional tourism and perhaps to those businesses that are focused on the Indigenous community. So when you think about it, it could well be that the natural momentum that we've seen emerge over the last four or five years could be given an extra kick along by redirected spending and a new patriotism by Australians looking to support local and very Australian businesses. And it was also interesting that, hands down, all of our guests on this episode said that failing is a part of succeeding in business. What's your view on that, Bernard? I love that comment from every one of our guests because when it comes to failing, I kicked off my career by failing. I failed my first year of university. And in fact, because I was spending far too much time uh, socialising, as it it turned out. Having too much fun, Bernard. (laughs) Having too much fun, yes. I suppose that's part of it. But, But also it was the wake up call that I needed. And I've long thought that, that you learn more from failing or from a failed exercise than from just going from one success to the other. And I think it's also you're setting up unrealistic expectations for yourself if you think that uh, you're going into business and you won't make any mistakes. Now, hopefully you can't keep making mistakes, but you've got to learn from them. And I think that's the great learning that I took out of failing university, um, face up to things and, and, and make sure it doesn't happen again, or to learn where you went wrong and to create a better product. In many respects, it's like honing a sharp knife. Every time you make a mistake, you're sort of sharpening the blade to make sure that you're better positioned to, uh, uh, to, to thrive thereafter. And you, I wouldn't want to make a habit of it. Uh, you can't do that in business. But as long as you learn from it, recover, and uh, that's where resilience comes in, I suppose, I think um, there's a lot to be learned from failing. All right. Well, that's all for the program. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.